I mentioned yesterday that, that the Everett interpretation was essentially the only interpretation of quantum mechanics that's consistent with the absence of action at a distance. And in fact, it's the only one to satisfy three desiderata that Einstein always stressed for any decent interpretation of a, of a theory in physics. It's rather um, cruel to think that the ever interpretation appeared two years after Einstein's death. It is an old interpretation. It goes back to 1957. What were the three desiderata that Einstein wanted to be, to be visible, for example, in, in theories of physics? Well, first of all, he would like to see the theories being realistic. What does that mean? Well, Einstein himself was widely regarded as a realist philosopher of science. He believed in the existence of mind-independent reality. But Einstein himself was very subtle on this. Einstein had a very good philosophical nose. And his view of this was something like the following. It may well be that the fundamental bedrock of reality is mind-dependent. It could well be that we are creating, some, in some sense, the reality around us. We don't know for sure. But science, as David said yesterday, has been very successful over the centuries in starting with the premise that there is a world out there independent of us, and it has certain natural regularities which are the laws of nature. Let's stick to it. So this was Einstein's dogma about which he was not dogmatic. It was a kind of um, a program. Now, occasionally, he would be asked, well, you talk about creating models of the world. We may even be inside those models. We have tried to have some way of understanding how it is that mind-independent reality impinges on us. But when you have a successful model of some aspect of nature, how do you really know that the objects in that model correspond to the real things in the real world? Sometimes philosophers call this something like a correspondence theory of truth. And Einstein's reply was, there are certain questions the answer to which is a smile. <laughs> so Einstein's point was, let's try to construct a model of the world that has as its bedrock elements of reality which are independent of minds, independent of the mental, things that are just out there. So that was what he was looking for in a good theory of physics. And that's what he was hoping a good interpretation of quantum mechanics would, would exemplify. Then again, action at a distance, of course, a lot of this had to do with the fact that Einstein was the father of special relativity, and it's widely accepted in special relativity that no causal influences propagate faster than the speed of light, and therefore instantaneous action at a distance is, is to be ruled out. Actually, the issue of locality in quantum mechanics is much, much more subtle than that. There is no version of quantum mechanics that allows for signals to be sent faster than the speed of light. Well, that's not entirely true. But as I say, the issue of locality is quite a subtle one in, in quantum mechanics. But the other, the final um, desideratum, which is in a way the most famous one that's associated with Einstein is determinism. God does not play dice. Now, this was probably the the, the desire, the desideratum, that was least important for Einstein. And certainly if there'd been a, I think if, if, they had, if there were a, a highly successful theory that was indeterministic um, and had these other properties as well, I think Einstein would have bowed to it. 
But it turns out that the fundamental equation in quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equation, is deterministic. And here it is. And I'll say more about it in a moment. This, this, this term here represents the rate of change of the wave function. That's what you need in an equation of motion. And this is a deterministic equation. And so the question, of course, arises, well, where do the probabilities come from? Where, do the, where does the so-called the apparent randomness come from? But the fundamental dynamics within the Everett interpretation is deterministic. Now, here are the covers of, of two books related to many worlds, of course. I think you're familiar with this one. This one is a book about, it's really, a, it's the proceedings of a conference. David was one of the co-organizers that took place some years ago in Oxford on the many worlds interpretation. For those of you who haven't seen the cover of this book, this looks like a tree. In fact, it's not. What this is, this is a forest. This is a photo taken by something like a helicopter, perhaps, that's undergoing logging. And these are the tracks that the trucks make as they go in to cut down the trees. Now, the reason that it's here, of course, is because it represents, it's a sort of a, it's a, sort of a cartoon of what's happening in Everett, because the Everett branching it's a bit like a tree. And branching is a time-directed process. You don't see the opposite happening in time. You don't see lots of branches converging into a single branch. This is a time-directed phenomenon. Similarly, here's the cover of, of David's book, recent book, for which he was a co-winner of the so-called Lakadosh Prize in the philosophy of science this year. Here's the word emergent. The emergent multiverse. Emergence is a time-directed notion. Emergence is a time-directed notion. So the question is, how does this all fit in to the Schrodinger equation? <coughs> Let's just very quickly compare the Schrodinger equation, for example, with Newton's second law. So here's Newton's second law from classical mechanics. The mass multiplied of a, of a given body multiplied by the rate of change of its velocity, which is its acceleration, is equal to the force acting on the body. And it's in the same direction as the force acting on the body. Well, as it stands, this equation doesn't really say very much. It's a sort of promissory note. Because, for example, well, what kind of force is it? Are we talking about the gravitational force? Are we talking about magnetic forces? Suppose we're talking about the gravitational force then there's going to be a certain formula here <coughs> involving things like the masses of the bodies in question, the distances between them, and so on. So what Newton's second law is sort of saying is, look, you will, given the nature of a certain kind of force, once you've chosen it, you will be, be able to find a formula here for that force which will give you the right accelerations for the body in question. This is the inertial mass of the body. The inertial mass of the body is essentially a measure of its laziness. So when you have a given force acting on a body, the lazier the body is, the less it wants to accelerate. <coughs> it's called inertia. This is the inertial mass. So really what you're hoping is, in, when you write down Newton's second law of motion, you're hoping you can find a formula for the given force. And of course, Newton was hugely successful in finding a formula for gravity. He was not successful in finding a formula for the magnetic force or the electric force, for example. 
Well, was he ultimately successful? No, he was not. Because actually, the promissory note was not, was not met. And this is why Einstein is so famous. Because Einstein realized that in the case of gravity, if you really look at it carefully and you want to make it consistent with special relativity, there is no successful force formula for this, form, for this equation. That's why we had to move to Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is a new theory of gravity. But now, a similar thing is happening in the, in the relation to the Schrodinger equation. This is the rate of change of the wave function. We saw what the wave function did yesterday. It describes the neutron moving through interferometers. In principle, it describes a photon moving through the Mach Zender interferometer and so on. And again, we have this, this thing here. Well, it's not, it's not like the force function. It's, a, it's actually an operator, as we say in, in quantum mechanics, operating on the wave function. But nonetheless, this is a promissory note. <laughs> whatever the wave function is doing, whatever environment it finds itself in, we should be able to find a formula for H. It's called the Hamiltonian. And in general, we can. In general, we can. But of course, this is the, this is the equation of motion for a single, a single particle like a neutron. And of course, in general, it gets more complicated when we have lots and lots and lots of particles. But the same thing can be said for Newton's second law. Neither of these gives an arrow of time. Now, why is that? Well, simply because if in the case, for example, of, of Newton's second law, suppose we have some process, a particle is accelerating due to some force. Well, we can invert the sign of the velocity. So the particle is going in the opposite direction. And it turns out that the whole equation, given the force, the function we found for the force, it turns out the whole equation still works. In other words, when a particle, for example, is accelerating in some direction due to some, the, some external force act, acting on it, exactly the opposite process is also a solution of the equation. So I mentioned yesterday the case of billiard balls in collision. You, t you take a film of billiard balls colliding, you show it backwards, you can't tell which was the original. You can't tell which was the fake and which was the original. At least not at first sight. Of course, there will be frictional effects and so on. But, but at, to first approximation, you can't tell the difference. And that's because the Newtonian law is essentially time reversal invariant. A process happens one way in time. Its inverse process also is a solution of the equations. And it's exactly the same with the Schrodinger equation. Well, there is some technicalities here. It turns out that when you go put t goes to minus t, you also have to make a change in the wave function. But this is not something that's entirely surprising. For example, in, in Maxwell's theory of electrodynamics, you have an electric field and a magnetic field. They're evolving over time according to Maxwell's equations. When you invert the time axis, it turns out you have to change the sign of b, the magnetic field vector. It goes from a positive to a negative value, or from a negative value to a positive value. So when we invert time in our equations, we often have to compensate by inverting the signs or something of other things. In the case of the wave function for the mathematicians in question, we have to complex conjugate it. But nonetheless, the fact that we can do that, and we end up getting an equation that takes the same form, is telling us that every process that happens one way in time, its inverse can happen also. 
Again, as I mentioned yesterday, we're not inverting time. We're simply saying, if we have a process in which the particle goes that way, according to a certain path, then we can set up a situation where the particle goes from that side to that side, also forward in time. It's the exact inverse of its original. If you switch the sign of the B, you also have to switch the sign of the F. No, <coughs> because you're also switching the sign of T. And F doesn't have, doesn't have time in it. Yeah. So the question is, since neither of the fundamental equations in these theories gives us an arrow of time, where does emergence come from? Where does the branching come from? This is an old problem, as you can see in the case of Newton's laws. <clears throat> so let's just think, for example, of a typical case when we're dealing with a gas. Now, this has not, nothing to do with quantum mechanics at the moment. We can consider a gas, for example, as being a set of gas molecules, let's say little hard spheres, and they're just bouncing around and hitting each other according to Newton's laws of motion. So we can find, for example, the correct force laws that govern the, the collisions. They're going to conserve energy and angular momentum uh, and, and linear momentum. And we put the gas inside a, a container. There's an empty container on this side, and there's a valve here. And we start with this state where all the, the gas molecules are on the left-hand side, and they have a certain density and pressure. And then we simply open the, the valve. And what do, what do we expect to see? We expect the, the, the gas molecules to diffuse into this part until we end up with an equilibrium situation where the pressure is the same on both sides. And as Richard Feynman would say, we've gone from purple to Luke purple. <laughs> now, this kind of thing we expect to see all the time. This is just one of zillions and zillions of examples of processes that we see around us. Why do we never see it the other way? Why do we never see the gas molecules spontaneously vacate this side and end up like this. That is consistent with the laws of motion, the laws of collisions in, in Newtonian mechanics. Why do we never see it? Now, if we say it's consistent with the laws, we know it's not impossible. Now, the point that I want to stress here is the fact that it goes one way, <coughs> the fact that you get a diffusional process like this where you get a, a natural equilibration, because the minute you open that, that valve, you've created a non-equilibrium state. Equilibrium states are essentially defined to be those which are time independent, and in, in particular, they're static, and the pressure, for example, in the system is uniform throughout. So you have one pressure for the system. Here, of course, you don't. The minute you open that valve, the pressure is inhomogeneous. It's high here and zero here. The point that I want to stress here is that it's not the fact that this, is, that this goes from a non-equilibrium to an equilibrium state. That's perfectly consistent with the laws of collisions. That's perfectly consistent. The puzzle is, why doesn't it go the other way around? If it went the other way around, it would also be consistent with the laws of physics. Why do we never see the second process? And by the way, if you think, well, if I just wait long enough, maybe if I just sit down beside this thing for a year or two, you can bet your life that within your own lifetime, 
you are not going to see this happen. The probability of this happening is it's absolutely tiny, and you'd have to wait many times the age of the universe to see this happen, if it happens at all. Well, this is what's sometimes called in the literature a branch system. We're not talking here about the universe. We're talking about a small subsystem of the universe that's put into a state in which once you remove the valve, it's a state of non-equilibrium. It's a state of sometimes called low entropy, because when the gas diffuses into both sides, the entropy increases on both, uh, for the system. And then you, what you're really doing is you're taking a little piece of the universe, you control it in some way, you set it up in a low entropy state, and then you leave it alone. And then you look and see what happens. And lo and behold, the entropy increases rather than decreases. <coughs> even though the decrease of entropy would still be consistent. In fact, it would be entirely consistent once you've opened the valve here for all the gas molecules to go up into a little tiny corner of that container, which would even be lower entropy. That's consistent, too, with the laws of collisions. So the question is, why do we see one process and not the other? Well, I've just spent a month visiting the physics faculty at the University of Vienna. And on the second floor of the building, here is a statue of the stern Ludwig Boltzmann. Boltzmann was one of the great glories of Viennese physics at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century. And he was interested in applying mechanical notions to thermodynamic systems like gases. There was a well-defined theory of thermodynamics that involved things like notions of equilibrium and entropy and there was a law about entropy increase. Second law of thermodynamics, for example, there was a lot of time asymmetry inside thermodynamics. But, but Boltzmann was interested in getting underneath the skin of thermodynamics. Thermodynamics says nothing about the nature of the working parts of heat engines. And this is the miracle of thermodynamics. You can find a theory that at a certain scale in physics, the goings-on inside things like heat engines do not depend on what the working systems are made of. That's why it's so powerful. It has a kind of universal feature to it. And people like Carnot and others discovered these universal regularities in thermodynamics, which didn't require any statement about what, for example, a heat engine was doing, say, what the steam in a, in a, in a heat engine was. It could be a continuum. It could be particles microscopic particles bouncing around, it doesn't matter. So Boltzmann was, was a father of what's called the kinetic theory of gases, where you actually provide a model. You provide a model for gas molecules, and you treat them as little tiny Newtonian mass points, essentially, or hard spheres, which are bouncing around and being governed by the laws of collisions. Wouldn't it be nice if you could start with Newtonian mechanics, the collisions of these things and show that the thing has to diffuse and the entropy has to go up. Now, in thermodynamics, actually, there are two ways in which you can talk about time asymmetry. Right at the very heart of thermodynamics is a, is a claim, not always highlighted in the textbooks, that systems spontaneously equilibrate. If you didn't have this claim at the beginning of thermodynamics, you really wouldn't get the theory off the ground. So in other words, if you take a system outside of equilibrium and just leave it to itself, it's going to head to a unique equilibrium state and stay there forever. 
This is obviously time asymmetric. Because once you hit equilibrium, you never leave it. Because by definition, equilibrium is static. Of course, you could hit it then. You could intervene and lower its entropy. But that's not the idea of what, of thermo, of what equilibrium is. Equilibrium is just the idea that outside of equilibrium, the system will spontaneously flow into equilibrium and stay there forever unless you intervene. That's the first way that time asymmetry comes into the theory. You don't require the second law. But then the second law says that when these equilibration processes happen, generally speaking, the entropy will never decrease. It may stay the same, it may increase, but it will never decrease. That's a second kind of time asymmetry. And what Boltzmann wanted to do was to capture the two kinds of asymmetry at once. Because he wanted to show that the gas molecules will, will go to a natural equilibrium state, and furthermore, that he can define something that looks like thermodynamic entropy that will be increasing. That's what his hope was. Now, just a historical remark. Every time you do one of these little cartoons, of course, you're skipping over some details, some complications. What Boltzmann did was actually not to show that the gas system will diffuse. What he did was to show that the following. Equilibrium is not just the claim that the gas molecules, there are as many gas molecules on this side as that side. That's only part of what you mean by equilibrium. There's also the question of the velocities. How do the velocities of the particles, I mean, is it a uniform distribution? Do all the gas molecules end up with the same velocities or not? And the answer is no. We know in the kinetic theory of gases, some molecules are going to be much, much faster than others. And there'll be a, a distribution of velocities inside the equilibrium state. This is called the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. So what Boltzmann was doing in his first 1972 um, theorem was to show that once the molecules were homogeneous in space, in other words, this system had gotten into this system, the distribution of velocities of the particles reached spontaneously the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. That's what he wanted to show. And this is the famous H theorem. Because H was the, was the entity that Boltzmann defined that was the negative of entropy. So Boltzmann wanted to show that the, the H decreases until you hit this Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution of velocities, and that means the entropy increases. Now, some of you probably have already smelt a rat. And this is what happened historically. Well, there's again the younger Boltzmann. Roughly, this is roughly what he looked like at the time of the H theorem, 1872. But here's the famous George, uh, James Clark Maxwell, one of the truly great physicists of the, of the 19th century. Of course, he was the father of the unification of the electric and magnetic fields and uh, the unification of optics with electromagnetism who was also a major figure in the kinetic theory of gases. I've just mentioned the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. And this gentleman here, Josef Loschmidt, was um, the mentor of Boltzmann when Boltzmann was a student in the University of Vienna. And both of these individuals were looking at Boltzmann's derivation of the H theorem, and they were saying, but wait a minute. You're getting a time asymmetric result out of a time symmetric theory. How can that be? So for example, when you show that the gas 
is progressively changing its velocity distribution until it hits the equilibrium one, if you just invert all the velocities of the particles at the end, it will retrace its steps, and the entropy must be decreasing. How come that doesn't happen? Explain. Remember, it's not inconsistent with the laws that the system equilibrates. In other words, it's not inconsistent with the laws that the system shows irreversible behavior, what seems like irreversible behavior. The question is, why don't we see the opposite, which is also consistent with the laws? Incidentally, sometimes we get a little bit confused about this. Sometimes people think, well, the mere fact that something time asymmetric for example, entropy increasing is a solution of symmetric laws is a problem. It's not. For example, we all believe in physics in the, in the isotropy of space. What does that mean? It means that when we go back and look at our fundamental equations, governing things like colliding molecules or neutrons and interferometers or whatever it is, if we do an experiment in the laboratory, and then if we imagine lifting up the laboratory and then rotating it in space, and putting it back down again, and redoing the experiment, we're going to get the same results. Because nothing in the fundamental equation picks out a preferred direction in space. Right? That's called the isotropy of space. On the other hand, when I look in this direction, I see a whole lot of faces, some attentive, some almost asleep, nonetheless. <laughs> when I look over that thing, I see a completely different view. How come? The furniture of the world is highly anisotropic. We've, had, we've broken the symmetry of the laws, but that's okay. That just has something to do about the way the furniture of the world arranges itself. The fundamental patterns in the world, over time, these temporal patterns, are the same whether you look that way or that way. So we have to make a distinction between the solutions of our equations and the equations themselves. So there's nothing wrong in principle with a process of equilibration taking place which looks time asymmetric, but nonetheless the laws are time symmetric. That's okay. The question is why don't we see the opposite? So this is exactly what the question that was raised. Then there was a famous debate published in the Nature magazine in the 1890s in which a British scientist called Culverwell said, Will somebody please tell us what the H theorem proves? So this is, this is 20 years after Boltzmann's theorem. Was, people were still debating what, what on earth it could mean. And there was a famous reply by Boltzmann as well. There was, this is a wonderful series of papers about the difficulties of understanding the H theorem. Now, roughly the same time as this debate was taking place in the Nature magazine, Henri Poincaré stepped into the scene. Now, Poincaré was the last, one of the last of the great, truly great scientific polymaths. He was the greatest mathematician of his era. And he was also extremely interested in mathematical physics. <coughs> and in particular, he was very interested in thermodynamics. Now, he was also one of the leading experts on celestial dynamics and the stability of the solar system. And when he was studying celestial dynamics, he proved a little theorem called the recurrence theorem, which says essentially the following. If you put a system in a box, so it has finite size, finite energy, doesn't matter how big, 
And you start from some state of the system. It could be as far away from what you call equilibrium as you like. So it could be a system of molecules, planets, whatever it is. Under very, very, very natural conditions, on the physics, certainly consistent with everything we know so far, in classical mechanics, this is before quantum mechanics, it turns out that if you wait long enough, the system will return arbitrarily close to that initial state, well, with very high probability. Sorry I mentioned that word in case some of you are trying to get, get your sleep today. Very high probability. But nonetheless, this is a kind of a recurrence. In other words, if the system starts by equilibrating itself and moving naturally to an equilibrium state, it's going to fluctuate out of that equilibrium state eventually and come back to where it was to start with, or as close as you like. And it does this an infinite number of times, if time is infinite. This is the recurrence theorem. So, <clears throat> Poincaré had this theorem, and then a few years later, he wrote an article in a philosophical journal saying, so much the worse for the kinetic theory of gases. Now, this was a big difference between this case and this case. These guys were friendly to the kinetic theory of gases, and they were simply saying, Boltzmann, explain yourself. This guy was saying, give it up. It's hopeless. You just wait long enough and you're going to see something weird, and it's not going to happen. All the evidence is it will never happen. There's something clearly, drastically wrong with the whole project. In fact, it's very interesting that Poincaré thought that heat was something like a Newtonian force. It was as fundamental as the Newtonian forces. In the kinetic theory of gases, these guys, heat is just motion of molecules. It's just the amount of energy the molecules have as they bounce around and hit each other. There's nothing fundamental about heat. For Poincaré, strangely, heat was something absolutely fundamental. And it was, it, was, it was something you had to add into classical mechanics, independently of all the force laws. Now, independently of Poincaré, a young Ernst Zermelo, who later became very, very famous for his work on the foundations of set theory in mathematics, picked up, he learned about Poincaré's recurrence theorem. He didn't realize that Poincaré himself had used it as a, as a hammer against the kinetic theory of gases, and came up with a similar argument. He simplified Poincaré's proof for the recurrence theorem and said to Boltzmann, he wrote a couple of papers in 1896, and said to Boltzmann, look, you have to come to terms with this. I mean, this is, just, this is destroying you. And if I have to bet between the kinetic theory of gases and, and thermodynamics, I'm going to bet on thermodynamics. All the evidence is in favor of it. We've never seen this kind of counterexample, and we're not, we don't expect to. <clears throat> well, Boltzmann came back and said something like, well, I, I didn't actually mean that the system equilibrates with certainty. I just meant it probabilistically. It's only likely to equilibrate in the next instant. I know that if you wait long enough, it'll, it'll, it'll disequilibrate. It'll pop back, back out of equilibrium and so on. But hey, nobody's going to wait that long. Nobody can wait that long. You're not going to see it. It's just highly, highly probable. Now, one of the problems was, where does the probability come into the proof? Where does it actually appear naturally? It doesn't. 
you sort of have to just put this in by hand. It's not that you're making a mistake necessarily, it's that you're admitting you've left out something in the analysis. And probability steps into kind of as a kind of fix. Well, later, Boltzmann came up with a second kind of argument. And I just want to run through this very quickly and show you. Here's another way of thinking why it is that systems equilibrate. It's completely consistent with the recurrence theorem, by the way. So this is an attempt to answer the Loeschmidt-Maxwell objection, the so-called reversibility objection. Here's the way it goes. Let's talk about what, mathemat what mathematical physicists talk about, the phase space of a gas. So here is a set of points. Think of, think of this blue region here. This is a set of points. Now, imagine that every single point, just let your, your imaginations run riot for a moment. Imagine that every point somehow represents the instantaneous state of the gas in question. So we're thinking of a particular gas in a box or a kind of gas that we saw before that's confined in one region and we're about to open a valve. Now, what is the state of a gas? Well, if these are Newtonian particles, to, to describe the instant state of the, instantaneous state of the gas, you have to specify what? You have to specify the position of each molecule, each hard sphere at that time, and its momentum, which is its mass times its velocity. Let's suppose that all the molecules have the same mass, just for the sake of simplicity. So what you need to do to specify this point in this abstract space is you need to specify, for every point, it represents all that information about the positions of all the hard spheres and their velocities. Well, clearly, a two-dimensional space like this doesn't have anything like enough structure. So what you really need is a space that has rather more dimensions. In fact, it has to have six times the number of molecules, dimensions. That's a large number, very, very large number. But let's ignore it. And we just think abstractly that this is a 6n-dimensional space. Every point represents a possible state of a gas. So far, so good. For mathematicians, for mathematical physicists, this is um, a doddle. It takes some, some while to get used to it. But this is, this is what's done in mathematics. Now. Suppose that we start off with a state in a non-equilibrium configuration. We, the, the gas is not in equilibrium. And we ask ourselves, what are the possible states of the gas that correspond to equilibrium? And it turns out there's quite a few of them. Now, don't worry about why I chose this particular shape. <laughs> the point that I want to stress here is that what the diagram shows is that all of the points inside that region corresponds to equilibrium. In other words, there are many, many, many more ways. Well, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. It's just that all of these points correspond to equilibrium points. Okay? So, isn't it natural to think that if the gas starts here, of course, that point is going to move around inside phase space because the system evolves. It's the states of the, I mean, the positions of the molecules are changing through collisions. The velocities are changing. That particular point that represents the state is going to be moving around. It's going to define a continuous curve. Isn't it going to move into the large region? So eventually it's just going to get stuck in here, and then it'll move around sort of randomly or something, and 
It'll get stuck there for a long, long time. So the blue region is the set of equilibrium or maximum entropy states. And I just, just for this combinatorial argument, it seems there's so many more ways of getting into equilibrium than going from that point to a yet lower entropy state. But the combinatorial argument cannot be the whole story. And here's the first reason. What does it mean to say that that region is bigger, say, than that one? Both of them have an uncountably infinite number of points. This is always the problem when you're looking at a continuum set. If you count the number of points, insofar as it's meaningful, well, actually, it's an uncountable number. It's an uncountable infinity. Take any finite region of a continuum, there's an uncountable number of, of points in that region. And it's exactly the same for the blue one. So you need to have some notion of volume. You have to define volume. Well, how do you do it in phase space? How do you do it? Is there some natural volume measure? Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're choosing your volume measure just to make that set look very big. So you can explain why the system equilibrates. Has to be careful here. Well, there is a natural volume measure. It's used all the time in statistical mechanics. But one has to be careful. Where does it come from? How do you justify it? But suppose you can convince yourself that there is a natural volume measure. <clears throat> what then? How is it that we determine, just because that volume is so much larger than any other one that's outside of equilibrium, how do we know that the system's going to move there? Well, why did I choose that shape? Let's rotate it to the left, and we end up getting Australia. Now, why did I choose Australia? Because here's a map of the population density of Australia. So the brighter the, I mean, the, the stronger the color, the darker the color, the greater <coughs> the population density. Australia is a very large continent, and it's mostly empty. Now, if people were gas molecules, they would be perverse, wouldn't they? How come they're not diffusing it right across here and filling the whole thing so that the pressure, population pressure is, is equal? Something is stopping them from diffusing into the interior. Well, we all know what it is. It's not just beer. <laughs> so, the, but I mean, this, this takes, makes us go back to our original one and say, well, wait a minute, if gas molecules are not like people, what is it about them that makes them necessarily jump into, well, not necessarily, but with very, very high probability? And herein lies a tale. This depends very much on the dynamics of the system. It depends on the choice of the forces, for example, it depends on how you'd model the collisions and all the rest of it. So there is a dynamical element here, and one has to be very careful about saying what it is. Now, certain people come along and say, well, I can actually make it pretty much certain that the, the dynamics is such that it will move into this region and stay there for as long as you like. And this is sometimes called the ergodic hypothesis. A system is ergodic, essentially, if the amount of time that it spends in a particular region is proportional 
I'm roughly speaking proportional to the size of the region. So if the system, if this dynamics is ergodic, then in the very, very, very long run, in the infinite long run, it's going to spend most of its time in equilibrium. And in fact, this picture is really underestimates just how big the equilibrium subspace is compared to the whole in relation to all the other possible states of the system, regions of states of the system. I mean, the equilibrium, the equilibrium set vastly dominates the phase space. But the trouble with this point of view is just the following. Well, if I know what it's going to do in the infinite long run, what does that tell me about the next 10 minutes? This is, again comes back to a, a point that David raised yesterday. If you're defining probabilities in terms of frequencies, and frequencies are defined as an infinite, you know, the limit of an infinite number of, of tosses or something. Well, you know what's going to happen in the infinite limit, but what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes? Anything could happen in the next 10 minutes. In fact, anything could happen in, in any finite period that would be completely consistent with any probability you like that's defined over an infinite time limit. So we want to know why does the gas move out of that one um, bulb into the other so quickly. I mean, it's extremely fast process of diffusion. The free expansion of a gas is very fast. That doesn't really come out in any natural way from the so-called ergodic hypothesis. So we're still left with a sort of a puzzle here. Now, of course, there are many points of view still. There are many points of view about what to do here. One of them is just to say, well, it should have been obvious from the beginning. I'm not saying this is necessarily the right way. It should have been obvious in the beginning that if we have dynamics that's time symmetric, we're not going to get a time asymmetric result out. Asymmetry out, asymmetry in. Has to be that way. So where does the asymmetry come from? Not from the laws. Not from the dynamics. But of course, there's more to physics than dynamics there are also initial conditions of the universe, sometimes referred to as boundary conditions. You just given the, the laws, for example, you can't say what a gas is going to do until you say, well, I have to know what the initial state of the gas is. Once I know what the initial state is, I can apply the law. But if I don't know what the initial state of the gas is, the law is useless to me. So then the question is, well, maybe all of these things are happening just because the universe was set up in some strange way, right from the beginning. And it just turns out that once you have that initial, very, very fine-tuned initial state, all these processes are going to evolve over time, all these branch systems, these little things, like the gas in, 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 uh, in bulbs and so on, you're going to see time asymmetric behavior, and that's all there is to it. So what I want to end up in on is just a, a word of warning about what we mean by causality in physics. Do we explain the presence on the basis of the past? Well, here's Stephen Hawking. A complete explanation of the arrow of time requires explaining why the universe started out as it did. It is a problem in cosmology. It is a problem of cosmology, says Stephen Hawking. Well, first of all, if that's right, what resources do we have for explaining why the universe started the way it did? Anyone tell me? Not obvious, is it? We have one universe. It started in a certain way. How do we explain that? Well, maybe it's part of a huge ensemble of universes. 
not the kind of thing that, that David and I have been talking about. We're not talking about branching within a single universe. Maybe there were just many, 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 many universes to start with, and they all started themselves out, maybe with their big bangs or something. They started out with random initial conditions, and the only ones we're going to be in are the ones that favored life eventually that have to have time asymmetric processes. Who knows? Well, something like this is emerging out of a combination of string theory and inflationary cosmology, so we don't really know yet. There's another notion of the multiverse that's emerging out of physics at the moment. But this is all very, very, very speculative, and not a single concrete prediction has come out of these theories yet. So we just don't know. But generally speaking, what does it mean to say that the past causes the, past causes the present? That's a Persian carpet. Now you're looking at this carpet and you have a scientific bent. And you're seeing that there are patterns in the carpet. And you're studying these patterns. And you place a bet to yourself. You say, hmm, I've been studying these patterns. I think I've worked them out. I've got an equation for them. If you give me just a slice out of this carpet, I'll predict. I can tell you what the rest of the carpet looks like. So there it is. Somebody says, OK, here's your slice. Now, given the information on that slice, I want you to predict what the rest of the carpet is. So you say, OK, I'm going to apply my equations. And I've got to know what the right is and what the left is. And I'm going to call the right the future, just for the sake of argument. And I'm going to call the left, whoops, I'm going to call the left the past. And if you're really good, and you came up with the right equations, you can do it. But of course, it didn't matter very much where you took your slice. That could have been your slice, in which case the future is a little bit less than the past. Question. If you're successful at this, it just means you found a law of physics. Now, if you think of, instead of the carpet, you think of the landscape of events in space-time, that's what physics is. It just picks out a little slice. It's called a space-like hypersurface. It's an instantaneous state of affairs. You put down certain information. For example, in the case of a gas, the positions and the velocities of all the particles in the gas. And then you ask yourself, if I've got the right equations, can I predict the future and the past? And the, and the answer is, well, theoretically, yes, you can. But now the question, we'll go back to the carpet. Did the initial slice up here, did it cause that part over there? Or did this end of the carpet cause the rest? The idea of causality doesn't seem to apply here, does it? It's just that you have a pattern. And the pattern is such that a small amount of information gives you the whole carpet if you know what the regularities are. And that's just the way it works in physics. So when we talk about the past, for example, having a low entropy state, something like that, insofar as this makes sense, it's very, it's very far from clear to me, for example, that we can apply the notions of thermodynamics to the universe as a whole. But let's forget, for example, about whether or not the initial state of the universe had low entropy. Let's just say the initial state of the universe was such all of the material 
and radiational degrees of freedom, for example, the gravitational degrees of freedom, all had a particular state. And as the universe moves along and it evolves according to the fundamental equations, assuming we have them, then it turns out that we see time asymmetric processes occurring in exactly the same way that I see something in that direction and that direction, they're different. But does that explain anything? In the case of the carpet, we're not explaining, we're not really explaining that part of the carpet on the basis of the so-called past. And it's no different in physics. We don't really explain the present on the, on, the, on the basis of the past any more than we explain the present on the basis of the future. We just have a subset of information, a finite amount of information, if you like, not the entire landscape of events, and we take that information, and because we know about the regularities, we extrapolate both ways. So what we really should be saying is, we are seeing around us all kinds of time asymmetric properties. And the initial state of the universe, we infer from all of this evidence that it must have been such that it led to these. But it doesn't explain them. It just had to be that way. In other words, we infer the past as much as we infer the future, in a sense. At any rate, we live in a world that we're surrounded by time asymmetric processes. And of course, quantum mechanics is no exception. So we're back to our neutron interferometer. And there's Professor Rauch again. And I've said before that Professor Rauch ends up, and David has, I, I think, convinced you by now. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Rauch hears a click, and Professor Rauch doesn't hear a click, and it's an and. So there are two worlds that have branched out from a single world, if you like. Now that branching, branching, I started at the very beginning by saying branching looks like something time asymmetric, and it is time asymmetric. You will not see, for example, the time inverse of this process, and one of the reasons is that it comes back to this thing that David mentioned yesterday, and I think I mentioned also, decoherence. It's the fact that when we take these two states of the universe, these two states, they are not interfering between themselves. They're, they become autonomous. How is that possible, given that the Schrodinger equation is time reversal invariant? Where does the asymmetry come from? Well, it turns out that this process of ensuring the non-interference of these two, these two worlds, the fact they don't interfere, that process is, a, is, a, is an irreversible process. We understand pretty much how it works. But the equations for this, the way that these things remain decohered, they're not interfering with themselves. The equations look just like the equations in other examples of time irreversible processes in physics. So the same, insofar as there is a mystery, the same mystery holds in quantum mechanics. We have a branching process that's time asymmetric. We have the idea of emergent worlds. And this is all tied up with our understanding of how it is that time asymmetric processes exist in a world that has time symmetric physics. Thank you.